0: I'm not sure how to decipher uh, the practice of gift giving in many different cultures. Um, how are we supposed to respond to uh, these these gifts? Um, I have noticed, however, uh, I I make observations by those who receive the gifts. Uh, Sometimes people who receive the gift, if they receive the gift over and over and over, they tend to kind of expect the gift, okay? Um, Maybe it's because they believe themselves to be kind of a a cool person. Uh, And people give them gifts because of who they are, because they're cool people. Well, then I've noticed uh, that, I think, the people who expect the gift can transition into those that feel that they're entitled to a gift that they give over time. In other words, uh, sometimes, I'll say we, sometimes we forget the gift giver. And we, when we feel that we become entitled, Uh, to this uh, particular, to a particular gift. And I'll let you fill in the details, um, uh, thinking about your own experiences uh, of gift exchange and gift giving and how you feel when you receive uh, a gift. The passage that we're going to be looking at today, Romans 9, deals with this issue of, or I I guess you could say it's a warning uh, to us and to others who fail to recognize the gift giver. It warns us against feeling that we are entitled to in, in this case the gift of God because of what we, we've become familiar with, because of his, his, his history with us. Okay? Now um, the, the, the last few times I've been here we've been working through Romans Last time I was here ages ago, uh, we finished up uh, Romans 8, and we emphasized the cosmic nature of God's redemptive work. We've looked at how all human beings know God, how all human beings have the law of God written on their heart, and how all human beings have failed, but yet how all human beings can be made right before God uh, through faith and they can have peace with God as well. Now, one thing that Paul, the writer of Romans, what he does, he occasionally steps back and makes a kind of qualifying point or a few qualifying points. So he lays out this argument and then he says, okay, now don't misunderstand me here and let me explain X. He does this in Romans chapter 6. I think he kind of does this in Romans 7 as well. And in our passage today he also does the same thing. Romans 9. Now his qualification in Romans 9 I think stems from the fact that his audience is divided into two. He's talking to Gentiles but he's also talking to Jews. And, and I, I have a lot of sympathy for Paul because as he lays out the gospel, he has to consider these sort of two worlds, almost kind of like bring these two worlds together. Okay. Now I would say that that uh, uh, you know Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11, they sort of have to go together. Uh, they, they they act as a unit, and so it would be better to. Uh, exposit um, Romans 9, 10, and 11, Um, but we don't have time uh, to do that today, so we'll just focus on nine. I mean, we don't have time to do it today because if I did talk about Romans 9, 10, and 11, you all would be late (laughs) to our two o'clock service at Reformed Presbyterian uh, Fellowship, so don't be late for our (laughs) Two in the afternoon service, uh, you'll be hearing a, a gifted and godly uh, preacher. Um, I, I'm not talking about myself. <laughs> 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 uh, I'm neither godly nor nor gifted. I do sweat down, so that's that's my superpower. Uh, anyway, um, so let's let's you know focus on Romans uh, chapter uh, chapter nine. With the knowledge of this universal fall and and cosmic redemption as I said at the beginning, Romans 9 then steps back, stops, and considers the status of those uh, from whom salvation came. That is, the unbelief among the majority of those of Israel. It seems odd, right, that, that Christianity comes from this... His uh, historic group from these traditions but why is it that the majority of those of Israel are struggling with belief? Has God abandoned his people in favor of a new people? Has God thought to himself, well it really didn't work out for Israel so I'll start somewhere else. I'll go with those who are not of, of Israel. Have the Gentiles replaced uh, Israel, regardless of what your understanding of Israel as, as a people, uh, as a nation? You know, has God created a sort of new redemptive track that applies to the church? And now we're sort of in a church age, and once that's completed, then God's going to return uh, to finish his work with uh, Israel. Well, I think the answer to these questions. Um, are pretty, pretty simple, Part- particularly the first question. Has God abandoned Israel? No. And it's consistent with the argument that he makes throughout the book of Romans. And if you're taking notes, here's um, the main idea for our text today. It's this: God's people constitute a nation gathered together by his sovereign will for our redemption and his ultimate glory. God's people constitute constitutes a nation gathered together by his sovereign will for our redemption and his ultimate glory. So what I'll do is I'll read... Um, Portions of the passage, but that will be preceded by uh, the, the point that I would like to make, the supporting point to the overall uh, thesis here. So number one, the promise of God is the historical inheritance fulfilled in Christ. We can shorten that if you want. The promise of God is the historical inheritance of Christ. And here we see this in Romans 9, uh, 1 through 5. So let's read Romans 9, 1 through 5. I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So in this first part, Paul contrasts the plight of Israel. Remember, he's trying to deal with this problem of, why aren't they believing us? What's happening? So the plight of Israel with the promises of God made to Israel, and he expresses his, his concern with a deep care, even offering himself uh, uh, to be a curse on their behalf. Now this comment by Paul mirrors that of Moses when he interceded for the people of Israel and we can see this in, in Exodus. Exodus 24 the next day Moses said to the people you have committed a great sin but now I go up to the Lord perhaps I can make atonement for your sin so Moses went back to the Lord and said oh what a great sin these people have committed they have made themselves gods of gold but now Please forgive their sin. But if not, then block me out of the book you have written. This is one way Paul connects the Old Testament to the New Testament by following the, the pattern of, the, of the, the figures in the Old Testament. So Paul asks that the curse earned by Israel followed him so that the Israelites might be forgiven.
1: He knows that this
0: request would not be granted. Uh, some believe he's speaking... In hyperbole, in this section, but let's not forget the point. What's behind the hyperbole? It's hyperbole. The problem of Israel is its failure to embrace the salvation offered in Christ. By turning their backs on Christ, the Israelites have placed themselves under the curse that comes on all those who fail to believe. Now, it's understandable why Israel's failure to believe creates this significant theological problem especially in light of the promises listed in verses 4 and 5 as I said how can the people to whom God gave so much now be cut off from this historic salvation the the nation received the adoption as sons God chose Israel to be his own and was also given the glory the presence of God among them the covenants the law the temple worship the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of which are so foundational to this redemptive history. But also from this history comes the Messiah. and We see later in the passage, here's the stumbling block. But it's from this history that comes the Messiah, at least in terms of his human ancestry, John says in his gospel, the Messiah came to his own. But, but Paul does something very interesting related to the, to the Messiah. There's more to Christ's human descent and lineage. In a pattern that he follows elsewhere, Paul reminds us of another side of the Messiah's nature, namely that he is God over all, forever praise. And, and it's interesting that this is one of the few verses in the New Testament that directly applies Jesus with the title God, undeniable. Now, there have been some translation problems with this passage. I don't know what translation you are uh, using. There are some translations that are pretty good um, in terms of making a tight connection, that, that very tight modifier, between Jesus and Him being God, and surprisingly, it actually comes down to uh, uh, whether you're going to use a period or a comma. This is all you, for you punctuation it's uh, out there. Uh, remember, punctuation saves lives. <laughs> punctuation also preserves doctrine. <laughs> uh, the let me give you just a few examples The revised. standard version of scripture says this of their race according to the flesh is the Christ period God who is over all be blessed forever amen I think that's too wide of a, a gap okay the modifier could be a little bit tighter let's let's move in a little bit closer the living Bible says great men of God were your fathers and Christ himself was one of you a Jew so far as his human nature is concerned He who now rules over all things, praise God forever. Maybe a little bit better? I don't think we can do better. King James Version says, Christ came, who is over all, comma, God blessed forever. Still, again, not a very tight uh, uh, modifier. Uh, The ESV, the NIV, and strangely with the new Revised Standard, uh, is a little bit better. And here's what it says. and this is the, the, I use the uh, ESV, again related to the latter portion of verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ come, who is God overall. Amen. Who is God overall. Amen. And I think that's the, the intent. In most biblical scholars, there's a consensus of oh, that's the better way and that's the strongest way of saying it and and I think it fits with within the sense of what Paul is trying to do point two God chooses his nation God chooses his nation and here let's read verses six through thirteen But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time, next year I will return to Sarah, I will have a son. Not only so, but also when Rebecca has conceived children by one man, our forefather father Isaac. They were not yet born and had not done, but they had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hate it. This is very important. Paul makes a clear distinction between Israel and Israel. If you don't make that distinction, you would be guilty of of committing an equivocation. Not all the physical members of the nation belong to Israel. That is, in the spiritual sense. So the question is, what's the spiritual sense? Some would say that that, uh, Israel is transferred to the church our body right here um, and I think Galatians 6.16 uh, supports this where it uses the word Israel when applied to the church the Israel God applied to the church the second reference and i think closer to the passage that we're looking at today it refers to Israel that may be composed of both Jews and Gentiles but we shouldn't forget In the immediate context, God is talking about a select few within the entity of Israel. A remnant. So this is demonstrated by drawing on the history of the patriarchs, citing God's choice of Isaac and Ishmael, 7 through 9, and that of Jacob and Esau, 10 through 13. Both choices already tell us that God did not guarantee the blessings to all, physical descendants of Abraham Uh, N.T. Wright says that this is a matter of grace not race kinda cute (laughs) through Isaac and Jacob God extends the promise God's children are not first and finally natural children but the children of promise And Paul refers us to Malachi chapter one, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now we may sort of wince at that word hate, right? Does God really hate? Does he have emotions like humans? How cold. Well, how should we understand this this concept of hating uh, uh, Esau? Well, most Theologians, uh, or at least the five that I, which is not most, but anyway, I looked at five um, uh, modern uh, theologians, and they've said this, that um, the real dilemma is not positive versus less loving. It is a matter of divine preference, a sovereign ordinance uh, of unique character. Another theologian says, what this is is a declaration of the sovereign counsel of God as it is concerned with the ultimate destinies of men. And then one more says, God chooses those who will be saved on the basis of his own will and not on the basis of anything else. Works of the faith, whether foreseen or not, in those human beings so chosen. So there are those, especially who are not um, uh, comfortable with what we would consider more Calvinistic uh, understanding of this passage, have argued that this is not about individual salvation. That is the choice. It's not about individual salvation. It's about nations. The older will serve the younger, the nations of Israel and Edom. Um, the ancestors of Jacob and Esau, not necessarily Esau serving Jacob itself. I would admit that I I, I think this is a fair observation, but not quite convincing uh, to me. Regardless of whether we're talking about an individual or nation, the example of Jacob and Esau reveals clearly that election remains a matter of God's choosing and not of human birthright or decision. Jacob and Esau had done nothing that would have caused God to choose one individual or nation over the other. The the choice of God was unconditional. That's why we talk about the doctrine of unconditional uh, election. So God chooses his people. God chooses the nation for himself. Now maybe another question was, well, well, what's behind that? What's behind his uh, choice? Well, this gets us to point number three. So God chooses a nation. Now God chooses, point number three, God chooses to show his glory. God chooses to show his glory. Now now we're going to read a larger chunk of the passage, verses 14 through 29. We can follow along here. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, and I might show you my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? How can you, how can you punish us? How can you blame us then? For who then can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say. he has prepared for him for glory even us whom he has called not from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles as indeed he says in Hosea those who are not my people I will call my people and her who, have, who was not beloved I will call beloved and in the very place where it, had, it was said to them you are not my people there, will, there they will be called sons of the living God So I admit that this uh, idea of fairness, is this fair, is this just of God to choose? Uh, I, I'll admit that it's a, it's a sticky issue and it, and it should be a sensitive uh, issue, especially when we are communicating the gospel uh, uh, to the world. But asking the question of justice, raised in verse 14 and then to 19 as well, repeated in 19, we presuppose a standard But where does this standard reside? Where does it begin? What's its foundation? So when we come to God and ask about his standard for justice, we need to be careful and we need to understand where it's coming from. We finite and sinful humans must measure God only by the standards that he himself has revealed to us. You see this in 14 and 15. Imposing our own canon of right is foolishness. So perhaps we should rephrase the question, uh, turn it into a rhetorical one. Has God acted according to his revealed character and will? Of course he has. Now Paul shows this by offering two parallel arguments, 15, 16, and then 17 and 18, we see in both uh, portions here, both uh, parallel arguments, two sides of God's sovereign decision making. On the one hand, God's mercy. Moses asks God to reveal his glory to him. God causes his goodness to pass before Moses, proclaims his name, the Lord, and then asserts his freedom in bestowing mercy on whomever he chooses. <clears throat> And I think the principle here is that God's mercy cannot be earned by a human being, verse 16. Now the other side of God's decision making is in his hardening, referencing Pharaoh in uh, Exodus. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, which then allowed God to display his lordship through various miracles against the Egyptians. <coughs> When we get to verses 20 through 23, Paul references other Old Testament passages, Isaiah 29, Jeremiah 18, to show God as the potter who works clay with into whatever form he chooses. And remember our starting point. God is not explaining how, uh, sorry, Paul is not explaining how God's action might correspond to our sense of justice. It is by God's standard that we must be judged. Mm-hmm. He's the one who has the right to do with humans, whatever He might want to do. Now verse 22 highlights God's patience in refusing to bring his wrath upon those who disobey Him. Now God, why is God patient? Well, the most important reason, verse 23. Centers on making his glory known to the objects of his mercy, those whom he has chosen to be his people. Now, what is meant by glory? Or in the, in the Greek, uh, doxa or doxa. It's a hard word to define from uh, scripture, but most uh, thinkers would, would uh, define glory to mean. Judgment, opinion, honor, but more importantly, splendor, brightness. Think of the sun, majesty, holiness. And in the, uh, um, in the Old Testament, uh, the, the, I guess the word that's used for uh, glory means weightiness, something that's heavy. So let's, take, let, let's think about the Old Testament, the heaviness of glory. Almost, almost kind of like an oppressiveness of glory. And then the New Testament, the brilliance, the brightness of it. Uh, Augustine uh, calls, defines glory as God's brilliant celebrity with praise. It, makes, it may take some time to uh, deconstruct that a little bit. <clears throat> And, and there's a practice in churches, right? We sing the uh, doxology. The doxology is the expression, logia, uh, uh, of glory, of the doxa. Um, praise God, from whom, whom all blessings flow, or glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the uh, Holy Ghost. Um, and, and, and theologians have sort of zeroed in or or honed in this uh, uh, definition of glory as the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. Infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. God's glory is shown as he reveals himself. 2 Peter 1.17 Talks about or refers to God the Father as majestic glory, also as presence, right? So this is very important. As he reveals himself, reveals himself in uh, uh, general revelation and also in special revelation. That is a revelation of his glory. God demonstrates his glory in creation, again, generally as well as specifically in his people through Christ and the gospel. <clears throat> This idea of God's glory should guide all of our theological speculations. It may force us to think that God cannot help but to manifest his glory. He is dependent only on himself, not anything else, to manifest his glory. And he must, because he must do it. <laughs> uh, he can't, he can't uh, I guess he, he can temper it. because we can't take the full blast of God's glory. There's enough for us uh, to see. So what if we shifted all of our theological speculations uh, to um, begin with the glory of God, Mm -hmm. right? To explore God's redemptive history, um, what happens is we often focus too much on ourselves. What we can get out of God? What do I need uh, to be saved? Although that's a good question. There is a kind of, oftentimes, a kind of self centeredness to the gift. Remember, we sometimes forget the gift giver. We feel like we're entitled uh, to the gift. Consider how God's glory would reorient or revise some of our basic theological questions. For instance, when children or maybe even adults will ask, why didn't God just correct the problem of sin after Adam and Eve sinned? Fair question. My kids have asked that question. Why is there sin? Why is there evil? Why didn't God just do away with it? Could God have simply ended you know, or reversed the fall? Well, they, I guess you could say yes. Okay. Yes. But... Would it have provided a further unfolding of his self-revelation, his glory, if he were to do that? In light of the New Testament, which is a fuller revelation of God's glory, I think the answer would be no. So he could have done something the way maybe we wanted God to do something, but that would not have been the way that he reveals himself, that he needed to do for himself. In other words, if he ended the fall, if he, if he reversed uh, uh, sin, would we need Christ? Right? And this is where, this is where Romans uh, uh, 9 comes in. Okay? If God is going to gather up a people for his glory, it means he must choose some and reject others. Is also done to further manifest his glory. And the way that he does this is through the person of Christ. So if God is bound to, again, God is bound to reveal himself. God's glory is also brighter, if you will, in the way that, or heavier, in the way that he extends the promise of salvation to all people. So it's not just himself. Again, God's glory is throughout uh, uh, redemption. It's in creation Paul shows that the prophets agreed with patriarchal history in confining the true people of God to those whom he especially called, and the new element is the extension of that call to the Gentiles. You see this in verse twenty-four. God calls his people from among Jews and also Gentiles. In verses twenty-five and twenty-six, he quotes the prophet Hosea to show that God planned to invite Gentiles. To be part of his people. And this has come true in Paul's own day. Verses 27 and 28. Paul returns to the remnant. The prophet saw that not all the people of Israel were faithful to God's covenant. And that it would apply to all those who believed in the promise. The fact that so many Jews in Paul's day had not accepted Christ does not mean, as Paul Proves here that God's word had failed. God's intent was that only the remnant would be saved. Unfaithful Israelites or unbelieving Israelites would be judged. God is faithful to his people in preserving a seed. That would carry on the heritage of Israel's blessing and mission. So we see God making a choice by his own sovereign will. We see what's behind that choice, God's uh, glory. Remember, God comes to a people, and that leads us to our last point, uh, point number four. God's promise is inherited by faith God's promise is inherited by faith and here we let's read the last just few uh, verses last four verses beginning at verse 30 what shall we say then that gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it that is a righteousness that is by faith Mm -hmm. but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him, will not be put to, put to shame. So this last portion returns, maybe we can say wraps up the main question. You know, Israel thought that they could achieve a right relationship with God by the law. They forgot that God was the one who offered the promise. The gift of creating a people for his own. And, and if they did that, they also forgot his glory, the end goal of all of this. See, they, they, many in Israel couldn't attain the promise because they, they pursued it in the wrong way. They sought it by works. They arrogantly thought that they could obey God perfectly. Jesus Jesus himself talked about this in his parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. The Pharisee counted on his own efforts to make himself right. Which is always odd to me when humans think that they can do works in order to make themselves right before God. What need do you have for God then if you can do it yourself? So the Jews rejected Christ's also failed by using the law as an end in itself rather than seeing it as a tutor uh, to Christ. But we should emphasize something. What Paul is saying about Israel should also be applied to all those who turn away from the promise. I understand that discussions about Israel nowadays, Israel and Palestine, be a very sensitive uh, issue. But I want to emphasize that Israel's problem is, is really all of our problems. But what Israel inheritance is all, what we can inherit as well. And so with this, let's make a few application points as we, as we conclude, just a, just a few application points. What can we, those who are outside of the history of Israel, I mean, I don't know if there's Jewish uh, heritage here, uh, I don't know, Uh, I assume most of us are uh, are Gentiles, what can we uh, take from this? Well, number one, we should be encouraged that that it's God, not fallen humans, complete the work of salvation we would fail otherwise number two we should rejoice that this promise is offered not just to Israel but all tribes and tongues all nations this promise is for you and your household Number three, with this in mind, we have been commissioned then to call all people to this promise, the promise of God, which is historically and ultimately fulfilled in Christ. This is our commission to give the good news to the world. Now, you know, a question may come up a subsidiary question may come up as to well for yourself, how would I how might I know whether I'm elect uh, or should I just pre- should I just preach the gospel to the elect otherwise I don't really want to waste my time right Well uh, this, this would take a whole other discussion uh, exposition, written volumes uh, to answer this. I'll say this uh, just for time reasons our responsibility is not to manage or monitor God's secret will our responsibility as human beings today especially if you haven't done so already is to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Messiah if you haven't done it already if you have done it what's your responsibility to believe in your heart and to confess with your mouth That Jesus is the Messiah and finally final application and this may sound like I'm going to sort of contradict myself this promise should cause us to thank God for extending his grace to all humanity all of us who don't deserve his mercy and his grace all of us who are made right before God by resting and trusting in Christ's completed work alone for salvation. We can go back to this question about election, as to whether or not uh, you are elect. Is there a way to sort of test that? Well, A sign that uh, sort of communicates uh, one's election is a life of gratitude. For the promise God has given to those who believe. This is part of the gospel. That, that, that we have a response of gratitude. We know that we have uh, sinned and fallen short. And we cry out to a Christ who became that curse for us. He and he was the one. He was the fulfillment of Moses. <laughs> he was the fulfillment of Paul and others to stand in our place. And for that, there is Absolutely no room for entitlement. Right? We just have to rest and trust in Christ uh, alone for salvation. And so, a question you could ask um, are you one of God's elect? Well, then, how is your thankfulness to God and His mercy in your life?